You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. If you will remain standing and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Once again, that is Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 1 through verses through um, verse 4. And it reads, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose among the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Verse 2, so the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Amen. Let us bow. Dear God, I thank you, God, for for your church. I thank you, God, for having other believers, God, that we can stand beside and sing and share our praises to you among you, among them, God. God, we thank you also, God, for your holy word, God. We know, God, that it's from your word, from Jesus, God, from the words that you've spoken, from the words that you've put in this book, God. We can have a we can have a taste of life, God. And God, I just pray, God, that you would just use the words that will be used today in the sermon, God, to just prick our hearts, God. Help us to change, God. Use the spirit within us, God, to lead us unto change. And God, I pray that if there be anyone, God, who does not know you, God, that today may be the day that they know you, God, that now may be the time of salvation, that they would come to know you in an intimate relationship, God. God, I also pray, God, that you would just, we're just thankful, God, for the men and women you have chosen from among us, God, to serve this congregation. God, I pray that you would just fill them, that God, that you would continually fill them up, God, give them grace, give them strength, And God, I pray that you would give them mercy, God, as they serve others within this church and outside this church wall. And God, we're thankful for your word. May you use our brother as a mouthpiece, God, to to share your word the way it is meant to be shared. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Today we're we're at a special time in the life of our church and that is that we are recognizing, ordaining, setting apart three men that you yourself have have, uh, nominated, have elected. And and that is uh, John and Brian and Alan, uh, these three men who will begin to serve as deacons here at Southside. And, and, And we're excited about what God's going to do, not only in their lives, not only in them, but through them. But uh, today, I'm, I'm going to kind of be speaking to, to these men, but I also need you to listen because you and I need to understand this, this idea of what it means to be a deacon. Now, last week, I talked about suffering, and I kind of put that sermon on hold till next Sunday. We'll finish that up, and we're actually in a series looking at suffering and what we can learn from suffering. But, but today, as we, as we set these men aside, I, I want to talk to you about what it means. Now, when I was a boy, I, I grew up Southern Baptist, so uh, growing up in the church, I always say I started church from the time I was conceived in the womb. My mom was in church. We were in church all the way up. And the last 35 years, I've been in ministry. And I, I've, I've, I've run into a lot of deacons. 
and and uh, as a boy, I've seen I've seen some some great men of God that I just that I just prided. Man, I I, I love being around them. They were just great men of God. Then I've also seen some deacons that were really not very good men at all. And and I, I wondered even in all honesty how they got to be in that position. And and so you know that's the thing. The the word deacon that that word there that term carries a lot of baggage with with it, doesn't it? I mean, you know, a lot of times we think about some men that have not been very good and, and we think, well, you know, I don't, I don't know about that position. A lot of people see it as kind of an administrative goal or, you know, a power position or something that you kind of you work towards so that, you know, it gives you a little bit of clout in the business world or in the community when you're able to say, well, I'm a, I'm a deacon at the local Baptist church here. At First Baptist Church, I'm a, I'm a deacon. And, and so we kind of twisted that term into something that in a lot of ways is unbiblical. Now I want you to know something. I would not be standing here today if it weren't for some great deacons. I remember a time Sheila and I, we were in a church and we were going through an enormous amount of fire, great difficulty. I had been in and out of deacons meetings. Man, I mean, buddy, I, I mean, it was tough. And I remember in one deacon's meeting, Sheila and I both attended the meeting and it got pretty ugly. And I remember Sheila trying to speak and a man, a deacon interrupting her and another deacon looked at him and said, shut it up. Said, all you do is throw gas on the fire. About the time we're getting ready to solve a problem and put it out, you raise it up again. And he looked at this man, he told him, you be quiet and let our pastor speak. I remember another time in a church I was taking a stand on the race issue. In fact, that church was also dealing with the race issue as well. I was in another church dealing with the race issue. And I had taken a biblical stand. And I mean, I'd been called into a deacon's meeting. And again, these deacons, they were really angry. They were upset. I had invited a very prominent African-American to come share his testimony and to sing in this church. He had been on Oprah Winfrey, been on 60 Minutes. He was a very influential individual, and I thought a great deal of him. And, and, and they wanted to fire me. The deacons wanted to fire me. And again, I can remember it got pretty ugly, and I can remember at one point uh, men began to literally threaten me and all of a sudden I looked, there was about a 70-year-old deacon that I promise you, that man could pick up that piano. He looked down and, and he made this, he looked down at a deacon and he said, if you talk that way to my pastor again, I'm going to knock your head off. And the guy kind of, he was a younger man, about half his age, he kind of looked at him like, did I hear you say what I just thought you said? And that deacon, that 70-something-year-old, I think he's about 72, he was a big old, he was a little short man, but he was, he was powerful. He said, and if you look at me like that again, I am going to knock your head off. And yes, I meant what I said. You know, when we think about this terminology, this idea of, of deacon, and there have been, there've been good men and there have been, been bad men. Uh, you know, a good deacon is a man that understands the way to pastoring and he will provide, he, listen, he will protect his pastor. He loves his pastor. In fact, I think that's one of the qualifications of being a good deacon. In fact, I wrote down there uh, because a lot of times a man who is preaching the word of God, and I want you to listen to me, a lot of times when you're preaching the Word of God, you know people will say all the time, Bell made the statement, said, I love coming here. Uh, I, that little white man, that little old white man, he tells it just like it is. Now that's just the way you said it, didn't it, Bell? And I didn't take offense at that. Now if you'd have called me a cracker or a honky, I might have got upset. 
But she said, no, I'm teasing. She said, but that, that little white man tells it like it is. But I want you to understand something, Bill. When, when you preach it like, it like it's written, when you say it the way God intended it to be preached, then you're going to come under fire. You see, people are going to take, they're going to take pot shots at you. And I think part of the role of a deacon is that they not only provide, and, but they also protect their pastor. That's an important thing. Do you know that when I came here now, Eva back there, Eva's kind of scratching her head like she don't know what to think right now. But Eva's the only one that's on the pulpit committee that called me here that is still a member of this church. Now, Eva may not be aware of this, but I hadn't been at this church long before one staff member who had it in for me got the deacons together and they met in what is now my office. I think that's kind of strange. And they met to run me off. They want, they were gonna, they were, I was under fire. You know, I've been under fire a lot. And they wanted to run me off. And there was a deacon here by the name of Walter Greenlee. Walter Greenlee's not here now. But Walter Greenlee was a, was a great man of God, still is. And Walter Greenlee said, I'm not going to let this happen to my pastor. And he took a stand. Now what I'm saying to you and I is this, is that this idea of a deacon is an individual who not only believes the Word of God, he loves and supports the man who is preaching the Word of God. That's what he's about. And so that's what we're looking at today. Now, now a moment ago, Reggie read to us out of Acts chapter 6, and I'm not going to go back over that, but real quickly, let me just let me say a word here about the purpose of a deacon. The purpose of the deacon in Acts chapter 6 was simply this. The New Testament church was just booming. It was growing. I mean, as it began to grow, more and more people were coming into the early New Testament church. And because of that, there began to be a lot of pressure on the apostles, on those men who were trying to preach and to teach the people. So the apostles, that's Peter and James and John and some of these, some of these men of the, of the New Testament, these disciples that had gathered around Jesus, what they did is they said, hey, wait a minute, it's not good for us to, it's not good for us to be spending our time waiting and waiting on tables, ministering to people. We need some help here. In other words, they said, we don't need to give up our time studying and being prepared to teach the people, so we need some assistance. So in the early New Testament church, what they did, they identified men that were full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. They set them apart, and they said, hey, we need these guys to help us. A couple of them was Stephen and Philip. Now let me say something, deacons, I want you to listen. Stephen was the first martyr of the New Testament church. That ought to speak volumes to you. Philip was the first man to cross literally ethnic lines. Philip went to an Ethiopian eunuch and took the gospel. Deacons, hear me, and especially these young men that are being ordained. You ought to be out there on the cutting edge, on the front line of taking the gospel to this community. And all God's people said... Amen. So you see, in Acts chapter 6, a problem in the, in the early church was the reason why we developed, why God began to establish this office of deacon. In other words, listen to me closely. Some people think that it is the pastor's job to do all the ministry, right? Just call the pastor. He can fix anything. I mean, some people look at me like Mr. Goodwrench, you know? I, hey, hey, folks, listen. There's, not en- listen. there's not enough tools in my tool bag to possibly fix some of the problems that you have. Let me say this, only Jesus Christ can fix those problems. 
Now, I can, I can teach you and I can disciple you, but that's all that I can do. But you see, a lot of times there's hospitals visits, there's people that are sick, there's senior adults, there are elderly, there are people in all walks of life. Many of you have all kinds of problems. And the reality is, is that a deacon is tuned into the congregation because, see, he's coming alongside the pastor to minister to people. So, so hear me, it's not just simply my responsibility. Now, listen to me closely. This is a startling statistic. Seminary-trained pastors today in America, that means these men have gone through 12 years of school, four years of college, three years of seminary to get a master level degree. Do you know what the average lifespan of, of these men in ministry? Listen to this. Eight years. Eight years. Eight years and the, in they're out of the ministry. That's the statistic today. In other words, the average pastor who is getting his seminary degree, getting a master level degree, and every, in other words, his whole life has been identified with ministry, his average time in the ministry is eight years. Now listen to me, because he's burning out. He can't do it. Let me tell you something. You know what I did this morning? I had me a good cry. I've been crying a lot here lately. This church is under attack. This church has been under attack by the enemy. But let me say this. This church has been under attack from the moment it was conceived. But it seems to be under attack more than ever before. You see, what God does and what you've done is you, you literally have said to the pastor, hey, we understand you need help and we have identified men that we believe are full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit that can come alongside of you. And I want to say this. I said a moment ago to Brian's parents. I said, what a great man of God. Y'all did a great job. You did a great job. Brian's a great young man. John's a great young man. Alan's a great young man. This past Wednesday night, I wasn't here. I, I, to, I told Sheila, I said immediately, I said, man, get Alan, let him preach for me. Let him do Wednesday night. These are great men that you've identified, but these men, along with the other men that are a part of this church, are simply men that you have said, Pastor, we know you need help, and we want to help you out here. Is everyone with me so far? Now, so here's the purpose. Now, let's see the pattern here. And I want you from Acts chapter 6, I want you to go over to 1 Timothy. Go over there, take a right. Take a right, go over there to 1 Timothy. And, 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 and we're going to look at it. it it's uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. It's right before 2 Timothy. Okay, it's right after 2 Thessalonians. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3... We have here a pattern. Now, everyone look this way once you find it. Paul, we're going to put some of you in Bible drillers. Ann, can we start a Bible drillers here? Hey, look, don't, don't laugh. Uh, one of your children went uh, through a scholarship uh, at MC, right? Two of them, two of them went through Bible drillers and got full scholarships to Mississippi College. One of them, it was everything, wasn't it? Not quite, but it was close. Yeah, MC's pretty expensive, so it was quite a big help. So uh, don't laugh. It's a good time to learn the Word of God, and you never know how it may come back parent to help you in the years to come. But anyway, Paul here, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. We just finished the letter to Ephesians, the letter to Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. Paul is writing to the early believers there in Ephesus, but he's writing to Timothy here, and he's telling Timothy... Timothy, I need you to identify leaders, and this is what I want you to look for. Okay, now are you ready for this? 
Because what he's doing is he's saying, Timothy, I'm giving you the responsibility here in the early church. I need you to identify and then to equip these men. Now listen, everyone, listen, stay here. Timothy's not looking for people that are talented. We didn't ask, could Brian play the piano? I don't even know if Brian can sing. Courtney, can he sing? Courtney's looking at me like, Courtney's looking at me like, (laughs) not a lick. Okay, listen, you'll find here that, that they were not looking for men with gifts. They were not looking for men with talents. They were looking for men that the Holy Spirit had anointed and set aside. So these were not positions to be politic for or to be sought out or to be desired. These are spiritually qualified men. John Williams, Alan Tisdale, and Brian, whatever his last name is. You see, what God is doing is God is saying through Paul to Timothy at the church at Ephesus, I need you to identify some men. Now, now look with me, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he talks about, look this way, he's talking about the pastor, he's talking about me. He's saying that the overseer, the bishop, bishop, the under-shepherd, he's talking about Brother Jeff, verses 1 through 7. Picking up at verse 8 now, he's talking about these men, these deacons. And in verse 8, he says this, Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as a deacon. Now, first of all, he speaks to to personal character. He gives five traits, each of them that have to do with personal character. Now, let me say that one of them is implied here. Men, that is, is that you, deacons, are to have a servant heart. A servant heart. Now, let me stop and say right now, that's true of all of us. You know, we could say diakonos, this word deacon, this word that means servant. One, it means through the dust. It means somebody that's running around and serving and waiting and ministering to other people. We could say, well, that's the deacon's responsibility. Listen, look this way. It is every child of God's responsibility. We are all called to be servants. Now here, it's implied that this man is an individual who serves sacrificially. He is a drink offering. Now stay with me here. In Levitical law, one of the things that the priest would do is he would not only offer burnt offerings, he would offer a drink offering. And what it was is that the wine that was first coming in, that first fruits, he would take that wine and look this way, he would pour it out before God as a drink offering, pouring it out. Do you know what God is saying about these men? Men, you, John, Brian, Alan, and all the other deacons in this room, but every one of us, we are to be poured out offerings, living our life in service to other people. That's it. Now, men, what that means is that in all honesty, like the pastor, you got to go it solo. And by that, I just simply mean you're not going to get a lot of compliments. You're not going to get a lot of thanks. It's kind of a thankless job. Do you understand that? Say amen. You see, a lot of times we do things because we want it to be reciprocated. I did this for you, now you do this for me. 
I did this for you, now you do this for me. But when you're in the position of being a pastor, or you're in the position of being a staff member, or being a deacon, or in all honesty as a Christian, we're just poured out offerings. We're just living our life in service to other people. And we are not, it's not contingent upon whether you ever notice me, or ever tell me thank you, or ever do anything because it really doesn't matter to me. I'm not doing it, listen to this, I'm not doing it for you, because the Bible says, I'm to do everything as unto the Lord. Let's say it together, as unto the Lord. You see, so there is implied here that picture of being a a servant. Now, every parent looked this way. You understand immediately, because parenting is a thankless job. How often does the three-year-old come in there and say, Dad, I just want to tell you, I appreciate you paying the light bill this month. (laughs) How often does a first grader come in there and reach up and say, Mom, thank you, that was a great meal. Most of them tear into it like a pack of pigs. You see, like parenting, being a deacon or being a servant for Christ is this idea of serving with no response, no thanks, nothing out of anybody, because we don't depend on that. We just simply quietly serve. Now look at me. Listen, one day, there's one day, I remember, um, man, my mind went blank. Richard's wife used to be here. Ledge, Richard, huh? Amber, Amber. Amber gave me, when I was hurting one time, Amber gave me a, a, a... puzzle that she had put together. It looks like about a thousand pieces, maybe bigger than that. And it's a puzzle and then she had it glued and she gave it to me. And this is what Amber said. She said, Brother Jeff, you need this now more than I do and when I need it again, I'll come and get it. And it's still in my office. It's sitting right there by my desk. But it's the picture of a man and from the back, he looks like me back when I was in my 30s because he has hair. But it's a man with his back and he and Jesus is embracing him. He's just come into heaven and Jesus is wrapping his arms around him. And, and, and that picture, it speaks volumes to me because that's the picture of what you and I will do when we get to heaven. When we get to heaven, then we'll hear the thank you. And let me tell you how to go. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. When I was hungry, you fed me. Naked, you clothed me. In prison, you visited me. He'll start naming off those like, Lord, when, when were you like this? When you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. You were a servant, a poured out. You just gave your heart and soul to it. I know nobody thanked you. I know nobody noticed you. I know it was hard at times. I know you wanted to give up, but listen to me. That moment will be worth it all. So there is implied here a servant heart. And, and I think often of my wife. You know, there's a, there, a pa- you've got the greatest pastor's wife that I know on the earth. Oh, that was pitiful. But I know, I know you know that. That was a pretty good amen. But I know this, that being a pastor's wife sometimes is a thankless job. You know, Sheila, you know, she, you know what Sheila would do? Sheila would get up. Sheila will, a lot, Sheila will go to the office once a week and she'll clean clean the office where she works to make a little extra money. 
Sheila all day will have a smile on her face. She's an office manager. She'll greet people. She'll smile at people. People will come in and out of that office. She's never in a bad mood. She's always in a good mood, always kind, sweet, and, and Christ-like. In, her, in, in the middle of that, she's carried the weight of not only running an office, a dental office, not only mopping floors to make a little extra money. Guess what Sheila's also doing? She's loving her husband. She's loving her family. Let me tell you this. We'll go home and eat today. My kids, my in-laws, none of them will realize, my grandkids won't realize that she got up early this morning and she put all that on. She even worked last night getting a meal ready. You see, the reality is, just like parenting, a deacon is somebody that's doing something, and it's kind of a thankless job. John MacArthur said this. He said, deacons are among the laity to implement and model what the preacher teaches and to serve as an example. So let's look on. So here we have, he says, deacons likewise be men of respect. And he uses the word there in in the NIV, worthy of respect, but the picture here is the word grave. Now, it doesn't mean he's got one foot in the grave. He uses here a Greek word that simply comes from a root word. In fact, the, the root word, I believe, is sabo. It's the idea, idea of a person being of majestic quality. Courtney, is Brian of majestic quality? She nodded yes. Celia, is Alan of majestic quality? She nodded yes. Emily, is John of majestic quality? Yes. You see, and you may say, well, that's a strange terminology here. But what it means is, is these are men who have the quality of character that people almost in some ways, listen to this, they stand in awe of them. Now, men, you may say, you may say, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know about that. I mean, I don't think people are standing in awe of me. Well, let me tell you this much. Would you begin to live such a life that they would? Can you and I be the kind of servants of Christ that we would live that kind of life? So here's a man, he says he's worthy of respect, he's grave. He goes on to say that, watch this, he is not double-tongued. What did the Indian used to say? White men speak with what? Forked tongue. What he meant was simply this. You couldn't trust him. He'd say one thing here, he'd say something there. The deacon is a man that is a man of his word. He's not saying one thing over here and saying something here. Listen, he's a man of his word. Do you know God's called all of us to be that way? You know, Reggie, I was looking at this word there. Um, it's, it's the word dilagas. Dilagas. And, 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 and it's the only time that Paul ever uses this word. And he says of a deacon, a deacon is not a gossip, he's not a talebearer. He refuses to be part of gossip because he's, he's ministering to people. He's in the private and confidential areas of their life. And what he's not going to do is he's not going to disclose a confidence. Let me ask you again, as a Christian, are you a gossip? Do you disclose a confidence? Now, he goes on to say that he's not one who, well, and boy, you're going to love this. You're going to wonder how in the world does a preacher get around this? Not indulging in much wine. Preach on. You may say to yourself, you know, wait a minute. Why not? Why not? Why did Paul word it that way? Why didn't Paul just say no wine at all? Because wine was a means of purification. 
When a Jew was cleansing, you see back in those days, they didn't just open the tap and get their water. They went down, you saw this morning in Sunday school class, Sychar, you know, to the well of Jacob. When they got their water, they had to purify it. They had to put it in a form that they could drink it. The, 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 first, part of war, the first part of wine was that they would put one part wine, ten parts water, in order to purify the water in order that it would be drinkable. Now, everyone looked this way. I've been a missionary overseas in Africa. And if somebody had told, and I have been sick, I, ha, I am sick to this day because of the diseases that I got from drinking. I had old veteran missionaries tell me, you're going to get sick, you're going to get sick. You, you know, when you get out there, you're going to get sick. Listen, if someone had told me that they could put something in that water in order to purify it, if they'd have said, listen, Brother Jeff, we've got some wine and if we pour a certain amount of that in and purify that water, I'd have said, pour away, buddy. Man, pour away. You see, wine was a part of the purification process, and, and, and so it, it, it was needed. I, I think, I, and I wrote this down, had Paul been preaching today, had Paul been preaching today when purification of water is not a problem, I believe that Paul would have said none at all if you put it in line with other scripture. But the idea here is, is that a deacon, a deacon understands, he understands and holds himself between the medicinal purpose versus abuse. A deacon understands that, that alcohol is something that could be used in a medicinal way, but, is not, but could be abused, and he refuses to abuse something. He understands that a drug can be used in a medicinal way, Way, but he refuses to abuse it. Does that make sense? So this is the picture here. Now he goes on to say that a deacon is not greedy of filthy lucre. In the King James it words it this way, but it says that he's not pursuing dishonest gain. When a man becomes a deacon and he's set aside as a deacon, and even in you and I, sometimes money, position, popularity, getting ahead in the world doesn't mean as much as it used to. Now, this is critical. A deacon is a faithful steward. That's what it means. He's a good steward. He's a faithful steward. He's not a part of dishonest gain. Because you may think, well, why would Paul put that? Because see, in the early New Testament church, you know what they'd do? They'd collect the offering. They didn't go lock it away in the safe and take it to the bank. These men were given the offering and they were, they were given that responsibility. Listen, they were watching over that offering. They, in essence, would take, they, were to, they, they had to be honest because if they were not honest, there could be great cost to the early New Testament church. So he says, listen, they are not pursuing dishonest gain. Verse 9, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, what he goes on to say, not only their personal life, but their spiritual life. Listen to this, men. These are men, and ladies, listen to this. They are spiritually grounded in the Word of God. A deacon is always prepared because a deacon is holding the mysterion, that Greek word, the mystery of the gospel. A deacon is somebody who's studying, he's attentive, and he is about, listen, he is about the Word of God. A deacon could be prepared to step behind here and, and preach if he had to. That is critical. Now, so, so what Paul is saying here is, he is holding, look at this, I want you to see it, verse 9, they keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with what? 
with a pure conscience, clear conscience. You know what that means, deacons? Listen, every deacon look this way. What that means is this. There's not internal conflict here between what you're living and what you're trying to, to live out. What's in your heart and what you're trying to live out. In fact, in fact, I wrote these words down. Your, the Bible and your conscience are getting along. Did you hear that? The Bible and your conscience are getting along. Hear me, hear me. Everyone listen to this. I'm not a hypocrite. I told a woman a couple of weeks ago, I said, I'm not a liar. I'm not a liar. And I can tell you another thing, I'm not, I'm not a hypocrite. If I'm not living it out in my private life the way I ought to, then I can tell you this much, it disarms me and cripples me when I stand behind this office here. You see, if this right here, if this is conflicting and there's conflict between this and literally my lifestyle in the private areas, then hear me, I'm not going to be a very good preacher, a teacher, a pastor. Men, hear me. It is critical, it is critical that there, there be agreement here. Number three, thirdly, he speaks to Christian character, verse 10. Now this is important, and let me say this, folks. Please keep the children quiet because a lot of, we got a great nursery and preschool, but I need you to stay attentive here. This is critical. I've worked hard here. Paul has not only spoken to his personal character, he's not only spoken to his spiritual character, now Paul's speaking to his Christian character. Paul goes on to say in verse 10, he says, listen, this man is tested and there has been found nothing against him that would keep him from serving. Now that's great. You see, what's happened here is, you know when Brian came here, we didn't know Brian. We didn't know Alan. John's been here a long time. John came up a little bit here at Southside. But for a couple of these men, we didn't know these men. But as we begin to look at their lives, as I begin to see, listen, when I see Brian running out to the van, driving that van on Wednesday nights, going into the streets of the, in this community, bringing these children in, when I see Brian wrapping an arm around these children, when I see John getting here early in the morning and he and Eric, both deacons up there early in the morning, sometimes almost beating the praise team, getting the sound, getting everything ready. When I see Alan, listen, if he's not here on Wednesday nights, I can tell you where he's at. He's in the prison as a chaplain reaching men and women in the prison. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You see, these men are servants. And I want you to know something. The reason we identified them, set them apart, was we saw a servant heart. We see something different in these men. And we see that kind of sacrifice. And we say, these men need to be alongside of our pastor ministering to this body of believers. These men have been tested. He uses a word here in the Greek, it's the picture of pottery. And he uses it in the present passive. What he's saying is it's ongoing, it's con they're continually being tested and they're being found worthy to serve in that position. Now fourth, and we'll close in a moment, look at, look at his home. Look at verses 11 and 12. He goes on to say, in the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife. He must manage his children and his household well. Now men, listen to me. Deacons, listen to me. And I, let me say this. There have been many men 
who have failed here because they have failed in their marriage or in ministry in their own home. You know what the Bible says of me? The Bible says that I'm to manage my own home well. If I can't manage my home well, then I have no, listen, I have no right to try to manage God's household, his family, the church. Now, deacons, stay with me here. When you are a deacon, you need to understand that it also means that you are administrating your own home. You know, Paul used the word ruling, submitting, hupatasso, that idea of falling in rank, of getting in order. So a deacon is, a, is an individual who, listen to this, because this is critical, and it's critical for all of us, he is able to control those that are under his authority. Listen, there have been, I can remember only one time I told Sheila to shut up. And I may have said it in the Shona language, in Yarara. But Sheila and I were at a roadblock in Zimbabwe. It was very dangerous. It was, it was critical at this moment. These people had AK-47s. They could have taken Sheila's life. I was about, I was a half dozen vehicles behind her at a roadblock with a bunch of, with a bunch of, thugs that basically were just intimidating the people on the road. I looked up there to see what the holdup was and, and I realized that the vehicle was Sheila's. Here's men with AK-47s. They are standing around the vehicle. I walk up there. I can speak Shona. I said, Munarabasa, you're working. I tried to be nice. They tried to intimidate and finally, I looked, at, I looked at them and I said, she's done nothing wrong. You have no right to hold her here. And they turned, it, turned on me. And I looked at Sheila and I said, go. Sheila looked at me and like, do I disobey them and go? At that point, there was a higher authority. I said, go. And she said something else to me. I said, shut up and go. Now, in that moment, my authority was critical in that situation. Had she not listened to me, she may have endangered her life or my life or our own children. She went and I dealt with it. The thought was this, if I die at this roadblock, that's all right. You and the kids are safe, just go. You see, it's critical that a deacon is able to control those men and those women, the wives, and their children that are under their authority. If they can't do that, the Bible says they're not qualified. Why is that? Because people look at a deacon they look at a deacon, they look at his marriage they look at his parenting and they say to themselves, that's the kind of marriage I want. That's the kind of home I want. That's what I want. You see, they're an example to the body of believers. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 11, and, and he speaks to the wives. He said, in the same way, a deacon's wife is to be worthy of respect. She's not to be a malicious talker. And the picture here is she's to be grave, dignified, worthy of respect. And she's also not to be a malicious talker. And again, he uses a strange word. He uses the word diabolos. And the word diabolos, Stan and, and Reggie, Reggie's already smiling. That word is the word for who? It's for the devil. And what he's saying here is, he's saying that a deacon's wife, listen to this, ladies, Emily and, and, and Courtney and, and, and Celia, I know y'all don't have no problem here, but uh, what he's saying is, 
a deacon's wife can be a she-devil. I've met a few pastors married to she-devils. In fact, I heard a man one time, preacher was, you know, it was a preacher and, um, you know, he was in a conflict with the devil. He was praying. He felt like he was having an encounter with the devil. And he was telling somebody else and the guy said, man, weren't you scared? I meant kind of feeling like you're battling the devil. He said, no, not at all. I've been living with her sister, living with her sister for years. You see, what it means here is, is that she's not to be a malicious talker and the word, the word that Paul uses here is the word for accuser or slanderer and the requirement is, Paul says, a deacon's wife must be able to control her tongue and if she cannot control her tongue, she disqualifies her husband as a deacon. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now let's close. Look at verse 13. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. What does that simply mean? A deacon doesn't pursue it. It's not guaranteed. But the idea here is, and I wrote it down, people want to follow your example, your personal walk, your marriage, your parenting. They want to follow your life. They see something, men, in you that literally shines out and they say, I want to be like that. Let me close with this. And I've shared this before. James Goss is a man that I've known for several years. First time I visited James Goss, Will and Wes were in University Hospital, and they were how old? They were in the hospital, and it was critical. They were five weeks old, and they were hanging. These two big old strapping, good-looking boys that are great ball players. they were hanging between life and death. It was really serious. One of them was more sicker than the other. Which one was more sicker? Wes, and he's made up for it since then. Okay, now, and, and this, was my, this was my first time to meet the Gosses, I believe. And I went in and began to minister to that family there at University Hospital. And, and, and through the years, they came here, united with this church, and we've watched those boys go from five weeks old to now big old strapping kids in high school. Listen, God has sent us a great gift in James Goss. Some my kids said James Goss is the closest thing they've ever seen uh, to, to Michael Landon on Little House on the Prairie. That's, that's a pretty big compliment. Now, now one day, one day we, had, we had been out to the Gosses, and afterwards they'd invited us to eat. And, and afterwards, as we left, Jeffrey and I were riding together, and Jeffrey looked at me and he said, Dad, he said, James Goss, he said, I believe is as fine a man I know on the earth. And he said, you know, Dad, when I look at his marriage and I look at his home and I look at his kids, said, you know, Dad, he just said, you know, Dad, he said, Will and Wes, he can just look at them. And he said, boy, they, they'll cower down. Or he'll look at them and say, what'd you say? He said, Dad, he said, when I see their home and I see their marriage and I see their parenting, he said, that's what I want to have one day. That's what I want to be like. Ledge said the same thing. Ledge on numerous occasions, Ledge looked at me one day and he said, you know, Dad, he said, I'd hate to ever get in trouble. He said, I'd hate to ever do something wrong in handling those kids because if I did, he said, buddy, you'd have James Goss on you. In other words, James loves his family and protects his family. And Ledge said, Dad, I like that. I want to be like that. Now you may say, well, you know, Brother Jeff, doesn't that hurt you? Don't you want them to be like you? Well, let me say this. First of all, let me say, first of all, I thank God that my children have other examples other than me to look to. I thank God for the testimony of the Gosses. Now, with that said, let me say this. A while back, I brought up Jeffrey's statement, his comment. 
Jeffrey looked at me, kind of got a little teared, and he said, Dad, so I want you to know something. There's no man on this earth I respect more than you. And he said, Dad, if I could just be like you. So you see, as a pastor, I need to manage my home well. Ledge made this statement one day when he and Alicia were flying, getting ready to go somewhere. He said, Dad, I told a group of people a while back, if something ever happened to Ledge, if something ever happened to me and Alicia, Dad, there's only one man I'd want to raise my boys, and that's you, Dad. Now let me say this. You see, I have a responsibility to live out an example in my home to my family. But I thank God for this family and that man who right now is watching and securing this this outer perimeter of this building and checking on your children while they're downstairs. Do you know that's what this deacon is doing right now? The reason this deacon is not sitting with his wife and his family is because this deacon is out there looking in the parking lots, looking at your vehicles. He's walking down there to make sure your children are safe while you're here. And I can tell you this much. Let me tell you something about James Goss. If somebody tried to harm one of those children in the preschool, what do you think James Goss would do, Mom? Take care of it. He'd take care of it. God's called every single one of us to be that kind of man or woman. Servants. Let's stand. Let's stand. And I'm going to ask two things. We're going to spend a moment in prayer, and I'm also going to ask these men and their wives to begin to make their way down. So while we pray, while I pray, I'm going to ask them to begin to come. And I want you right now to understand this, that if you have never received Jesus Christ, that's the first thing you do. Last week, Crystal came down this aisle, tears, and said, Brother Jeff, I want to know that I'm saved. I want to settle it. I want to know that. My friend, that's the greatest thing you and I will ever do with our life. When we just simply say, Lord, I can't be a servant. I can't have a servant heart until you have control of my life. I want you, Jesus, to be Lord of this. When Christ comes into your heart and his Holy Spirit lives in you, and my friend, you are saved and your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. Listen, when you've done that, you have the security of salvation. You begin to live a new life. You're just serving Jesus, just like these deacons. So if you don't know Christ, would you come today? If you need to recommit or rededicate that life, or you need to pray and ask Jesus to come in your heart, or you need Reggie, I'm going to ask Reggie and Ledge, some of our counselors to come, and Emily, Tamara, whoever, as these counselors come, if you say, I want to be saved today, I want to become a Christian, I want to know what you mean, I want to invite Christ into my heart, these are men and women that can tell you how to do that. If you need somebody to pray with you, you're going through a difficulty right now, and you say, I'm just, I'm struggling right now. These are men and women that can pray with you right now. If you need to recommit or rededicate, or you need to plant your life here, move your membership, then I want to encourage you to come and talk to one of these. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you love us. We praise you, dear Lord, because as the psalmist said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are made in the image of God. It doesn't matter our color. It doesn't matter our standing in the community. It doesn't matter how much money we have or how little money we have. I thank you that Southside is not a homogenous group of people where they all look and act alike. I thank you that we're very different. This is a picture of heaven. What a great church. And Lord, I thank you today that you have identified these men, Alan and John, 
you've put your arms around Brian and you've just wrapped your arms around John and Alan and you've said, these men are to be set apart. These men, their marriages, their homes, their family. Oh, they're not perfect. Neither am I. We fail. We mess up. We make mistakes. But Lord, may we live lives that people will see as an example of Christ-likeness. Father, I pray, dear Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you, you're speaking to their heart. I pray they would come today. Whatever decision that you want, that it will be done. And we'll give you the glory in the name of Jesus.